0: Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, my Bard colleague, Ian Baruma, author of the new book, The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. Uh, Ian, welcome back to Bookstack. Thank you. And congratulations on the book. So who were the collaborators? Well,
1: there were three people quite, quite unlike each other, really. One was um, a Manchu princess who was born at, right at the end of the Qing dynasty in China, in Beijing, and who was adopted by a Japanese ultra nationalist. And she collaborated with the Japanese um, in the 1930s and 40s during the war, um, especially in Manchukuo, which was the Japanese puppet state, now northeastern China, um, hoping that the with the help of Japan, uh, that the Qing Dynasty would be reinstated. That's one. She was also a cross dresser, by the way. Number two was a Hasidic con man called Friedrich Weinreb, um, who was an immigrant from um, what was then Poland, now Ukraine, uh, in Holland in the 1930s, or 1920s rather, became an Orthodox Jew, partly as a rebellion against his secular parents. Neuss thought he was smarter than everybody else. He had the, he had the, the real um, uh, spirit of a con man, and during the war under Nazi occupation in Holland, he pretended that he could put people on a list to be taken to safety in Switzerland or Portugal or Spain in exchange for money, and that this was list was backed by a German general. The whole thing was a fantasy. The list didn't exist, the general didn't exist, and he defrauded uh, an awful lot of people later probably collaborated with the Gestapo, partly to save his own life and that of his family. Um, and after the war became a kind of culture hero of the left as a kind of resister against the establishment, which was a popular attitude in the 1960s. Third one was a Baltic German with a Finnish passport who was Himmler's personal masseur. Himmler had terrible stomach cramps. And the only one who could help relieve his pain was Felix Kersten, who was known as my magic Buddha by Himmler. Was with Himmler for the entire war. Realized after the war that having been Himmler's masseur was not the best way to become the masseur to the rich and famous and well-connected in Europe uh, once again, as he had been in the 30s. And so he invented really a whole persona with, with a grain of truth that he'd actually been a brave resistor who in exchange for relieving Himmler's pain, managed to save thousands of lives. So what connects all three is that they were not only frauds, but that they were mythomaniacs. They, they made up their own lives. And my idea is then that there's a parallel to our own time of fake news and presidents who can make up everything as they go along.
0: As, as you say, I mean, these three main characters, they, they don't seem to have a, a lot in common initially. How, how did you even come to choose them? Well, I knew about all three. Um, all three characters are, are well-known
1: in, in their own countries or cultural spheres. Um, Kawashima Yoshiko, the, the, the Manchu princess, who has a Japanese name because she was adopted by this Japanese ultra-nationalist, is a mythical, legendary figure in Japan. There'd be movies about her and comic books and novels and so on. I knew about Kirsten. There's a famous French hagiography of Kirsten, the, the, the masseur. And I knew, and and Woody Harrelson is currently about to make a film where he of course plays this character as a great hero. And I knew about Weinreb because he was a a hugely controversial figure. And when I was a student in the seventies, he was very well known. So I knew about all three for a long time, wanted to write about collaborators and collaboration, because I grew up in the aftermath of World War II, very much with a sense of who was good who was bad who collaborated who was a hero and so on and we later of course realized that there were many shades of gray and um, not all heroes were good people not all collaborators were bad people so i was i was interested in what it is that tempts people to take the wrong route in very in, in of course extreme circumstances like occupation or dictatorship
0: and, and it's not just a, a, the, the question of collaboration, as you hinted at there. They're all frauds or con artists. Uh, at, at one point, you referenced the old legend of Baron Munchausen as a, a kind of a parallel. But, uh, but the point, of course, is that, that this complicates the historical record because the whole book is filled with these outlandish stories and subterfuge.
1: Yes. I mean, again, we're living in a time um, where truth is being questioned. The whole idea that there is such a thing as truth, it's being questioned by the left who think that um, any claim to truth is simply a fig leaf for privilege and that kind of thing. It's being challenged, of course, on the right by followers of Donald Trump and like-minded figures all over the world, that all truth is partisanship. And so, you know, what appears in the new york times uh, cannot be true because it's the new york times etc and so i believe that in, in times of political crisis uh, and certainly crises like foreign occupation so when the truth goes out the window and everything becomes propaganda um this is this is these are very rich pastures for fantasists but it also shows how dangerous it is to let go of the idea that there is such a thing as truth
0: yeah, I was very struck, actually, that one of the points that you make early on is that you know a lot of what we know about history comes through the imagination, whether it's books, films, computer games, and, and so on. Uh, and that's why made-up stories are worth paying attention to, because they do tell us a great deal about ourselves. They do, of course. And, and most of what people know
1: about history, which in many cases is very little, comes to them through fiction. And it, it was always thus. I mean, history has always been told ever since the Iliad and the Odyssey. I mean, history is myth or comes, comes, comes across as myth, uh, is retold endlessly as myth. But um, that doesn't mean we should let go of the possibly 19th century notion that truth also matters and, and trying to get as close as possible to the truth matters.
0: Yeah, I was I was very struck by that actually. That I mean, you you point out that truth telling has been challenged as being relative, and um, in, in academic theory, but also outside in the kind of the political sphere uh, for a long time, and and not in ways that have always been helpful to political and civic society. And and you do, I mean, you quote Ranker and and pose the question really whether we can or should get back to that idea of you know what actually happened. Yes, and, and I think it's of vital
1: importance. We're both interested in, in British history, and both of us have written about uh, Winston Churchill, for example, and he's an interesting case because he very deliberately in 1940 um, created a kind of myth uh, which was essential at the time to raise morale and so on. And after the war, he continued and maybe got a Nobel Prize for literature as a result, and literature is important in his case. He continued by really writing history in the way that he saw it and that suited him. But it's still extremely important to keep challenging those things. Um, It it wouldn't have done perhaps in 1940 to challenge Churchill when when Britain's back was to the wall. But afterwards, I think one, one has to challenge it because the truth is important.
0: Yeah, and you, you cite the example of Churchill and the way that that narrative of 1940 was, has been used in turn by others. You also give the example of de Gaulle in the book, the idea of eternal France, uh, as a kind of a myth. But is there a difference, um, not just of scale, but of content and intent, do you think, between the likes of Churchill and de Gaulle and the kind of characters that you're writing about and how they present the truth and for what reasons? Well, of, of course,
1: because there are good myths and bad myths. Myths about Jews and other minorities who have to be stamped out as as children of the devil are obviously entirely noxious. The, the myth of uh, the finest hour promoted by Churchill in 1940 was not noxious, was was essential. But the role of a politician, or indeed a filmmaker, Um, Cannot be compared to that of an historian. And even though an historian may not be able to reach similar numbers of people that a politician or a a filmmaker, if they're successful, can do, it's still important to constantly challenge myths and make sure that there is a record of truth.
0: Yeah, I was also struck when you were talking about your own experience growing up in in the post war Netherlands that. I mean, you talk about how the myth of nationwide resistance to the Nazis in the Netherlands grew up during that period. You kind of say that in some ways that was inevitable because of the uh, the experience of being invaded and defeated in 1940. You you admit that this is an old-fashioned word, but uh, it's one that you think captures it. You, you say that uh, the Netherlands was emasculated by that experience. But kind of, it, in some ways, it's almost inevitable, isn't it, that to cope with that kind of experience, to rebuild national spirit, that this kind of myth-making will go on?
1: Yes, I think it was an essential myth, because one of the things that happened, and this comes back to the collaborators, really, one of the, th- one of the inevitable results of foreign occupation or dictatorship is that it divides societies between collaborators and resistors, or people who are for the regime or anti the regime, the victims and the perpetrators. And, and this can lead very easily to civil war, as it did, for example, in Greece uh, in the 1940s and almost in Italy, and it could have happened in France, which is why to, to knit the nation back together after a period of, of defeat and humiliation uh, is important. But a generation later, or certainly two generations later, it's also important to challenge a lot of those myths.
0: And it is a tricky business to judge collaboration. You, you make that point very clearly that, uh, and give examples that the local official who remains in office to keep things going, the judge who continues to believe in the rule of law, the factory owner who thinks he'll treat Jewish workers better than the Germans running the camps... There's often a lot of self-deception going on in the very process of collaboration.
1: Well, not necessarily even self-deception. I mean, I, I was very interested by an article in the New Yorker recently about Ukraine, um, which described situations where a town is um, occupied by the Russians, and local officials, in order to keep people fed and and their homes heated and so on, then collaborate with the Russian occupation in order for life to be, able to be able to go on. Then when the Ukrainians come back and retake the town, these people are often then arrested as traitors and
0: collaborators.
1: Well, were they really, yes, they collaborated. Were they really traitors? They made sure people could still eat. So it's not always so clear cut.
0: Yeah. And then as you point out, bad things can sometimes be done with good intentions and good things can sometimes be done by bad people. Indeed, and sometimes for the same reasons. It was not unusual
1: in families, for example, for one son to join the resistance and the other to join the the Waffen-SS and go to the Eastern Front for similar reasons. So they, they were bored teenagers. They had authoritarian fathers. They wanted to travel. They liked guns. They wanted excitement and so on. And so moral categories become wobbly in these cases.
0: Yeah you say that that human weakness is is more interesting to you than saintliness and i mean it's interesting that you know you you say that part of the inspiration for this book was the idea of collaboration in the public square today you you hinted at that earlier what well, what exactly do you mean from that and how do you draw lessons from history that help us to think about these questions today
1: well i think any tendency towards authoritarianism. And one has to be very careful with historical comparisons. I think it's foolish to compare, let's say, Donald Trump to Hitler. He was not Hitler, nor was his administration the Nazi regime. But it was dodgy enough to give the opportunity to all kinds of chances and second raters and semi-criminal types to come to the fore. People who normally would never have got anywhere near power then can uh, grab their chance, usually out of opportunism, not because they believe in anything. And this, of course, happened in the 30s in fascist countries. Uh, it happens under any di- dictatorship or any authoritarian system. Then you, you get these choices. You know, do, jo- do you join a regime, even though you know that it's no good and, and morally reprehensible because it benefits you, do you not? with the risk that it could actually hurt you, uh, those are very difficult choices that so far, none of us who've, been, who've grown up in Western democracies have had to face, not even under Donald Trump. But you, we can see tendencies which could possibly at some point lead to a situation where we might be faced with such dilemmas.
0: Yeah, the other uh, theme that emerges strongly in the book, and, and one of the things that you're really interested in with these three characters, is, is the complexity of their backgrounds. As you described in your first answer, there they it often involves multiple national identities and traditions, and and of course that's something that you share yourself to some degree. That you grew up in the Netherlands, you were strongly influenced by Britain. You've written about the relationship with your grandparents in a previous book. You've worked in Japan and the United States, so. That these are, if you like, cosmopolitan stories, um, and you, as, a, as an author, are able to draw on a number of cosmopolitan experiences.
1: Absolutely. I mean, in that sense, I think many books about history are written by people who have some kind of autobiographical affinity with their subjects. And I am interested in people who come from mixed backgrounds. And in my case, it wasn't just influence from Britain. I mean, I very, feel very attached to Britain, and my mother was British. But uh, so that is is certainly a strong element in the story. But again, this is a very complex thing because often people with mixed backgrounds are suspected, um, again, in authoritarian systems in particular, are are quickly suspected of divided loyalties, of disloyalties, of being potentially treacherous, and so on. That can happen, but it's just as common for people who have mixed background but they feel the need to really plump for one aspect of their identity and become extremely patriotic, which was the case with my grandparents, for example. who were the children of immigrants from Germany. My great-grandparents came over in the 1880s, and my grandparents were intensely patriotically British in the way that many German Jews were very patriotically German until the Nazis took away that possibility
0: and it is i mean it is striking that this is another way in which these stories are very modern uh, because they they deal with issues about political national cultural uh, sexual identities in ways that actually do seem uh, very contemporary to us
1: yes and that's absolutely intentional i mean i think I'm not a professional historian. I'm very interested in history and I've written a lot of books that that deal with the past. But um, I don't think I would be very much good at writing about history as an abstraction. I mean, it has to have resonance with the time that we're living in, for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, and you do, you come back constantly to this idea of truth and truth-telling. And at, at one stage, you remind us of Václav Havel's dictum that to be free we must learn to live in truth. It's the definition of dictatorship, he said, that the compulsion to repeat official lies, uh, even when you know uh, they're, they're lies. That That is a theme, again, that runs throughout the entire book, it seems to me.
1: Yes, and I, I'm very much impressed by Harvel's essay on that because I think he he hit the nail on the head, really. I mean, the, the first thing that dictatorships do is not only force people to Um, fall into line behind the ideology of the the dictatorship, but in in a totalitarian system, force people to have particular views not only on the past, but also on the future. And so once people are no longer allowed to think for themselves and figure out for themselves what is true and what isn't true, and then express that, then dictatorships can last
0: for a long time. Yeah, we had um, Robert Kaplan on the show last week, uh, and he, he was talking about his book, The Tragic Mind, um, and and talking about this idea of a of a sensibility, the the way in which you approach these kind of questions, and, and I was struck that there was a parallel uh, with the with the work that you've done here, because you're not talking about one absolute truth, but at the same time you're not talking about multiple relative truths. It's almost a sensibility about how to approach the world, how to analyse, how to kind of think about, at least striving for some kind of uh, objectivity.
1: Yes. I mean, the thing that I find most annoying about,
0: I suppose, human behavior
1: uh, is enforced or unenforced, which is even more annoying, uh, conformism. Um, I think we have to try and think independently and individually and not be told what to think and then fall into line, even when we know that what we're saying is, is untrue. And so, yes, that is something that is very deeply Part of my psyche, I think it, I was very influenced by my father, who was a lawyer, who saw how complicated these issues were because he was a law student at the end of World War II or, and, and became a lawyer, a young lawyer very soon after. And the young lawyers in, in the Netherlands after the war were asked to defend former collaborators. The senior partners of firms found this, some, that was something that was beneath them, but young lawyers cut their teeth that way. And my father saw enough complexity in in many of these cases um, to realize that one has to be very careful uh, about one's judgments.
0: I mean, you're talking there about your father, as I said previously, you've written about your grandparents. This is not the first time that you've worked on the Second World War and its immediate aftermath. I mean, clearly, this this is a, a period of constant fascination for you.
1: Yes, because I I was born in December, 1951. So that was really six years after the end of the war. So, and it's difficult if you're at all historically conscious and you grew up in a country that had been occupied, it's difficult not to be haunted by it until the day you die, really, because you grow up with it, it's difficult to forget it's part of you not in the same way as uh, is the case with people who actually experienced the war, maybe even more so. And, and I'm thinking, for example, something Christopher Isherwood once said about World War I. And he said he was haunted by World War I because he was just too young to be tested as a soldier in the way that his brother and his father um, had been, and which gives it even more, um, in a way, presence uh, in the way you think of the world than if you'd actually experienced it
0: yeah and it, it, I mean that there is a, a kind of a melancholy kind of aspect uh, to this as well that which you acknowledge right at the very, very end of the book, you you talk about uh, how by turning your own life into a fiction, you don't have an identity at all. That's a melancholy state you write that threatens many of us, whether we live in a dictatorship uh, or not. I mean, what what are the the implications of that melancholy state? Uh, not just for our historical consciousness but for society and politics and civic society today
1: well i think today in america in particular but not only in america because american soft power is, is still so formidable we are living in a in a period where to conform or not to conform is not a question of life or death or even to be in prison or not in prison but there is a lot of pressure to conform both on the left and the right in an increasingly polarized situation. And so a lot of people feel that in order just to get on in their careers and so on, whether this is on the right or the left, they have to, they feel they need to conform to certain ideological shibboleths, even though they know in their hearts that what they're saying may not be actually true. And, um, if you could see this happening in a society, which is still ostensibly free where the consequences of these choices are not dire, um, how much worse it would be uh, in a society where there is no longer the freedom to choose. And this is something, again, partly because people of my generation are haunted by by the war and and, and Nazism and so on, something one cannot but be extremely conscious of.
0: And it is one of the the ironies you point out that uh, during the war, many of the harshest punishments or retributions uh, after the war was given to those who had committed relatively minor offences um, of collaboration during the war. I mean, in in some ways, again, there there seems to be there seem to be overtones of that today, in which uh, you know people are very often excoriated for what seem to be fairly minor offences of that uh, what you kind of described earlier as that kind of orthodox view, whatever it may be at the particular time, uh, the conformity.
1: Yes. That is true, but I think those two situations are slightly different in that the retribution after World War II was not so much ideological. I think the fact that, for example, women who'd slept with German soldiers were often more harshly treated than, let's say, industrialists or lawyers who had blood on their hands and were deeply compromised by collaboration with the Nazi regime, there are two reasons for it. One is that it goes back to this question of humiliation, the humiliation of defeat and occupation. And the greatest symbols from a male point of view of humiliation is that the enemy sleeps with your women, which is why rape, of course, plays such a large part in uh, military occupations and so on. And the other reason is that in order for countries to sort of to, to, to revive and to um, sustain themselves and to create a, a a more stable post-war, you needed elites, you needed the lawyers, the industrialists, the diplomats, the professors, and so on, If you, without whom the bankers, without whom, uh, let's say, West Germany, the, the democratic West Germany, probably couldn't have survived in those early years. And so that was much more a question, I think, of opportunism on the one hand and hurt feelings uh, on the other. And It was of ideological purity, which is
0: something that is perhaps more common today. In, in what ways?
1: Well, that today there's no question of invasion or humiliation, defeat, certainly not in the United States, unless you think that Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam and so on created great traumas in the American psyche. I think that can be overdone, that view. There may be some truth to it. But um, I, I think we live... In the United States, in a a society that is always has been, at its core, quite religious with a strong streak of Puritanism and in certain periods of uncertainty and so on, um, that can show itself, as it were, in, in a wave of awakening, as in the Christian awakenings of the 19th century, where people become morally purist and you have to conform, you have to show your purity or ideological purity, the, the, the sincerity of your faith, and so on and so forth. I think that that's something that plays a much bigger role today in this country than anything to do with war or occupation.
0: So the book is The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. It's written by my guest, Ian Buruma and published by Penguin Press. Uh, but for now, Ian, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening.